The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Lovely. Hey, I'm Sean Allen. I'm going to uh, read scripture today. So first, from Exodus 24 through 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to their third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. And from Colossians 1, 15 through 23, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present your holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Sean. Well, um, that video you saw, um, I do want to say it's amazing that Jordan Bear is even standing upright. Um, watching them do that every day and for, um, it's cool that we do it at night um, in the evening. So actually more families can be a part of it. And uh, man, the number of volunteers, just like a record number of kids is for over, easily over 400 kids and uh, from all over. And you may have seen even faces in there of people uh, that uh, are either pastors of um, other churches in our city. Uh, we just kind of come together and uh, it's really a sweet time and it was really a lot of fun. Um, and I'm so thankful to be a part of it. I, I got to speak on the la- the, a lot of the pastors. We get to speak, you know, for like two minutes and uh, just the... <laughs> Just you feel like, man, it's, it's a crazy environment. A little more wild than this crowd in here. So it's, it's like, oh, everything you say, they're like, ah, you know, um, it's pretty Pentecostal. So you need to come. You need to be a part of it next time. Or maybe y'all need to be more Pentecostal. I don't know. Um, I mean, amen. Thank you. Thank you. I don't know who said that, but I love that. Um, I remember... <laughs> Uh, being at, and I'm sure this kind of thing has maybe happened to some of you. I remember being at a Starbucks, and uh, not just the Starbucks part, but in, being in line to get my drink. Uh, this is a couple years ago, and um, I'm, I'm kind of at the counter part where they've, they're making it, and you're kind of waiting for them to call your name or to call the drink, and you're like, I think that's mine, yada, yada, yada. There's a little line behind me, and all of a sudden I hear this very familiar Australian voice. Say, that's a pretty strong drink, mate. I'm not going to try and replicate it. But, and I thought, 
well, that, that's cool. Thing. I mean, I guess I turn around and it's Keith Urban, okay? Um, and so let's close in prayer. No, I, so, so Keith says that to me. Yeah, Keith, like we're on a first name basis. So he says, good, and we start talking. I was like, well, okay, hey, w- would you order? You know, we start, it, it was such a surprising kind of, hey, strong drink, you know. Uh, and typically I get made fun of for the drinks that I order. Uh, and because um, I ordered those like drinks that have like six names in them. But, you know, Keith actually liked what I ordered. And um, so we were talking about it and we're just, I just was like, man, he's, so I leave and I just feel like, well, I just, I just hung out with Keith for a second. It really didn't. He doesn't even know my name. He just <laughs> talked to me about my drink. But, you know, you've probably had those encounters where you see someone in Nashville that may be of a notoriety, Right. And we're so used to possibly seeing them on a billboard or at a concert or um, in a magazine. And then when you sit there and you actually meet them, especially with with Keith Urban, I was like, okay, he's definitely shorter than what I thought. You know, you see him on stage, you're like, he's larger than life. Okay, he's a little shorter. Uh, But dude, he was so incredibly friendly to me. You know, you don't know what people are like. And so, because you construct what you do, and this is the very Nashville thing, you construct the the image of what you have those celebrity types or whatever you would put in that, in, in that category in your mind. But then when you in, interact with the real thing, you're like, eh, sometimes that fits and sometimes it really doesn't. I was like, man, he's just the nicest. It lowered, it actually made his presence, even initiating the conversation, made me take all some of the images I think of like him and, you know, people in that category and think, man, that this, this person's way up here. I, I can't ever touch them. And yet there's this connectability. The image didn't match. It's funny, we're, we're, we're really looking at, we're beginning a new series and we began it last week on the 10 commandments and we're now to the second commandment. And, and, and a lot of people, when they read the 10 commandments and even hearing that, you may go, okay, here we go. We're gonna hear about what these kind of things, what are the rails, guardrails of how I'm supposed to do and not do. But that's actually not how the 10 commandments begin. The Ten Commandments do not begin by the thou shalt not, better not do this. They don't begin that way. In fact, they begin with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. And then in order, so for us to understand the Ten Commandments, what happens is to get underneath the behavior, the Lord doesn't start with don't do and don't do this. He starts with relationship. And what's interesting about the first and second commandment, sometimes theologians will actually put them together because they almost look like one commandment. But here's the quick distinction. The first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me, right? Here's the relational love, forsaking all others, essentially what it is. It's a vow of the Lord's marriage to us. The second commandment comes along and says this, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any, any likeness, anything in heaven above, or that is the earth beneath, or that is in the water of, under the earth. The distinction is this, it's not just the forsaking all other, it's not taking God and making an image out of him or a part of his character or something out of him because what happens is it misses. Just like we have all those images of what we think God is like and sometimes we begin worshiping that one thing or this thing or that and we create it, be it in our mind or externally. So it's not just forsaking all others, it's also what are we doing in our relationship with God to say, I'm gonna make you more like this. I'm gonna airbrush you, God, to see if I can make you more tailored to the way I want you to be. 
So in this relationship that we have with God. And so here's what's interesting. The Ten Commandments begin with relationship, but they continue with them. And the end of the Ten Commandments is not for us to read them and go, man, now I've got this, this second commandment down, I can go. Actually, the commandments are to drive to an end. And I'm going to begin here. They drive to the end in of themselves, which is Jesus. Jesus said himself in the New Testament, he said, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. I came to fulfill them. Now, notice there are two things. The law is not abolished. It's not like, okay, now we're on this side of the Old Testament. We don't throw out, we throw out the law. No, 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 no. We don't throw the law out we actually pick it back up in a very different way because now it drives us to our relationship with him. It gets up underneath. In fact, this is why the New Testament calls the law, the law of liberty. It's not to drive us to more of, I need to do this or that. We've got enough of that. It's actually to drive us to freedom. Just like we do in any healthy relationship. How do you live towards that person, right? In any healthy way. You love them first, then you begin to say, what hurts them? What's wrong? You know, you begin to make sense of that. That's what these Ten Commandments are doing, particularly in the second one. And we're going to look at this as we go on, because there are two parts of this as you read this. There's seeing and believing, and then there's seeing God for how he wants to be seen. So seeing and believing, right? How does seeing have to do with believing? And then seeing God for how he wants to be seen and known. So as we begin this, it just says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I am the Lord your God. Seeing and believing. We we need to remember as, as the Egyptian people, right, had their land and the Israelites were in it. And now they're out of there. They've been brought out of slavery. They're sitting at the foot of this mountain where God is speaking. They received the Ten Commandments, but we know the Ten Commandments. They didn't. They didn't come out of Egypt going, oh yeah, I remember that one. That's not how it was for them. They had been enslaved for four centuries in a, in a, in a place where images and depictions of different gods were all around them. In fact, if we revisited the plagues, which uh, in the uh, previous chapters of Exodus, when the plagues, God sends those numbers of plagues on Egypt, even if you're here, maybe you're unfamiliar with that part of the Old Testament in the beginning of Exodus, and as God is, is saying to fa- sending Moses to say, Pharaoh, let my people go, we're gonna leave Egypt. God sends a number of plagues. Why does he do that? It's not just he's like, what can I use to really annoy Pharaoh to let them go? He actually sends very specific calculated plagues that deal with the specific gods that they worshiped. So he was, for instance, frogs. It was actually a fertility god. So what does God do to send a plague to say, who really has control over not only frogs, but fertility? He sends so many frogs that it is just madness in the land. God is showing who is God above all gods and that he is the God. But think about that. They leave Egypt. They're at the foot of the mountain. The mountain is smoking. It's almost volcanic looking. And they hear this and they're not like, oh, okay, depictions, sorts of gods. Their hearts have grown up as slaves in a land where they still haven't made sense. God is having to rewire their thinking. 
rewire the way that they understand even him. Because what they can do is they can take God and the images they have in their mind and say, oh, God is this. Now, remember, we just talked about this actually a few weeks ago with uh, another passage in Exodus that happens later than this. No, no, notice, not here, but after the Ten Commandments. It's called the, the golden calf, where the people of God are wandering in the wilderness. Moses has gone up in the mountain. He's been up there so long that they don't see him. And they don't see God. They just see smoke. And the tension starts to build. Where do we go? Who's going to lead us? They actually ask. Who's going to lead us? What's going to happen? Moses hasn't come back. We don't know where he is. What's going on? And the tension builds so much that they say, we need something. So Aaron, Moses' brother, helps them. They create a golden calf. They say, we're going to make this. Look, and, and, Moses, and Aaron says it beautifully. He says, I'm going to craft something so that you can know this is your God that led you out of Egypt. And that's where it went all wrong. Because they wanted to get, they felt the tension and they wanted to see. That's the problem we have. The problem we struggle with, we can't see God. And so we, so we reach, we, we look for things to get our arms around, to, we experience the tension so we craft. We create, we make in our mind. We experience that. So we want something embodied. We are, we're bodied people. We are people that have bodies. We, we focus on our bodies a lot. And so we want something that we can touch. We're tactile people, right? We, we love our coffee in the morning. We love to feel the heat coming off the cup, not just because of what it tastes like. We love those kind of things. We love a a book in our hand or, or some sort of uh, a podcast we're listening to that we can hold. Even though we're listening to it, we still love the way that we can hold our phones and, and deal with what we have in front of us, right? We're tactile. We love that touch. We felt the intensity of that when we had to be on screens for a number of months. And then we were like, oh, we can be together. Can we be together? It's okay, okay. We want to be as close as we can now. We feel that intensity, so we craft something. But that's where our minds run. This has been an age-old issue for our hearts, is that we've always wanted to make God in something portable, understandable, and, and something that we can have our arms around. And it's hard, because we sit with the same tension. Because ultimately, what we really want is our help over the chaos. I, I love Andy Crouch, who's a thinker, said this about, idols in an article called Promises, Promises. He says, every idol is an attempt to gain an edge on the world, to have some leverage over chaos. You know, we asked this earlier about what do you daydream about, right? When you daydream, you, your mind runs to something. You meditate on what you really want to change or fix or wish or hope. And it's really where we begin to, and if you say you're a follower of, of the Lord Jesus, we begin to say, how does Jesus, how can I leverage him to work in what I really care about? And so we can craft and create. <clears throat> we begin to, to put God in a position where we, God, we really want you to have these qualities and characteristics. We love the image of you up here. But when we come in contact with you in reality, sometimes it's off-putting. Sometimes we read passages, even this one, we're going to talk about it in a minute, that kind of end in this exodus with 
His steadfast love pitted against an iniquity. And we feel that tension and we go, I don't know. Maybe I can just craft and create God how he can fit with me. Cost-benefit analysis, right? We do it in a lot of other relationships in our life. What is the cost-benefit of this friendship? I'll tell you what. The one of the number one things I've heard, especially from newcomers moving to Nashville, is the, in, the tension they feel of, people and crowds and the friendships they want to make that can only keep them so close. There's a real like this. There's a southernness. There's a sweetness to Nashville. But do people really let you know them? Is there a reality? What kind of friendships do you have? Do they really know you? Or do they only know an image of you? Do you want them to only know an image of you? Because if they got that close, mm, because you like crafting around you the certain friendships and certain circles that you get. We do the same with the Lord. That's what this is getting to. This is saying, in your relationship with him, you may say, yes, I've been a Christian for a number of years, but in your relationship with him, what are the things about him or things in your life that you say, this is God to me? And you connect it to him. And it may be sweet, sentimental, but you put a characteristic of him in that. <clears throat> where you see that, energy, emotion, where, where you see your prayer life going, is a majority of your prayer life, here's a really great thermometer of it. When you pray, or if you even pray, when you do in those quick moments, and that's not an indicator of if you do or when you do, sometimes don't we pray according to the things we want or just towards an aspect of God's character? rather than the whole of who he is. We take a part of him out and we say, yeah, I'm praying. And then sometimes we just stop praying altogether because, well, you know, I'll just kind of live out my life. I love God, but you know, he just kind of lives in my life with me and does what I need. See, what this, this commandment's getting underneath is really how does your faith change? How does your faith change? You really want to have a love for God and really a healthy love for this world and things in it. Even this passage in Colossians talks about creation. There's a connection to that because we can take creation and say, yeah, I may be a Christian, but I'm going to take this over here and this over here and make it something that I can get my mind around. I think it's incredible how much the Bible spends on the eye, the ear, and the heart. These elements of us. The eye, the ear, and the heart. I remember being um, in Nashville um, years ago, there was an exhibit at Cheekwood called How Do You See God? Um, and, and, you know, you, these kind of exhibits pop up here or there. And I remember going and seeing an elements of like a medicine cabinet or a, a group of plastic fish nailed on a board uh, or a TV screen with certain video images. You know, that... Those kind of things, that's what we do. We ask that question, how do you see God? But isn't that how, what we do with him in our relationship? How do you see him? You know, often it's easier to live by sight and what we see and what we hope to see rather than who he is and what he can really do by sitting in that tension of faith because we want to see and yet we can't. Screwtape Letters is a book written by um, C.S. Lewis it's a fantastic book. It actually accounts an older um, demon 
training a younger demon of how to get into people who follow God's minds. How do we really get them away from the Lord? Listen to one of the things he says. He says, this older demon says to the younger one, I have known cases where what the patient, that is patient, called God was actually located up and to the left and to the corner of the ceiling or was inside his own head or in a crucifix on the wall. But whatever the nature of the object, you must keep him praying to it, to the thing that he has made, not to the person that made him. So you see this subtle shift. This is what the second commandment does. It means those things, and you know this in every relationship in your life, when you're with somebody and you're like, man, I wish my relationship looked more like this. Or I wish my child did this. I wish my parents treated me this. We begin to take those elements and we begin to look at God the same way and we look at little aspects and focus on that rather than who he is. And that's where our hearts run. In fact, uh, there was a great theologian named um, John Calvin who said, we are idle Our hearts are idle factories. In fact, the word here for making yourself a carved image is that word manufacture. It means we manufacture these things because actually in that time, there was a manufacturing process of making these images, taking creation and saying, this image is of God, right? Almost like if I took my wedding ring and said, this is marriage. And you're like, okay, that's a symbol of it. But look at me, what if I directed my my marriage points, my heart, my relational elements to that ring, it would make kind of, it'd be kind of strange, wouldn't it? It'd be weird if I took it off and I was like, oh my God, I'm not married. You know, like one of those things. But what am I doing? Where am I over attached? Where's my heart really guided, right? This is what this commandment is getting to. It's getting up underneath those things. That the emphasis of our faith is rather what we see and believe. Jesus argues this with the religious leaders. They're constantly coming to him saying, Jesus, if you really are who you say you are, then you'll just kind of perform these miracles and we will believe you. Just do this and we, I, we promise we'll follow. These are the religious leaders, the people who have read all of the Bible, at least the Old Testament for them. And they say, Jesus, if you do this, we'll follow you. We will believe. And you know what Jesus says? He even uses a parable to say it. He says, if you even see someone resurrected, you're not going to believe. Why? Because we so focus on the sight rather than faith. What, what does God do? What does Jesus even say at the end of his ministry? He says, it's actually better that I go. Can you imagine being one of the disciples? You're like, wait, what did you just say? You just rose from the dead. You said it's better that I go. What? We need you here. And yes, Jesus is raised from the dead, bodily form. He is, but he says, I'm gonna go and give you someone greater, the Holy Spirit. Do you see the Holy Spirit? We don't see the Holy Spirit. Doesn't mean his presence isn't there, but that's what's hard for us in our faith. How do we grow by faith? We grow by hearing. The eye, it's not the eye so much that drives it. It's the ear over and over. John chapter one, the gospel of John begins this way. Listen to what it says. For from the fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. 
the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The New Testament over and over talks about this kind of thing. It says, blessed are you who do not see him, who have not been one of the disciples that you read about in the gospel accounts, and yet you believe in him, that your faith is on him, that he is there. Because how do we grow? Isn't by just seeing everything. It's by knowing that he is at the Father's side and he has made himself known, right? Who brought us out of slavery? Where does it begin? It doesn't begin with that. It begins with who's the one that brought us into relationship with him so that our faith might grow. See, he says we have to see him for who he really is. That's why it says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them for I am the Lord your God and a jealous God. Jealousy is a word and his character often that we might be like, that can kind of grate on me. Because it's not a word in our culture that is a healthy word, typically. We don't use it in healthy contexts. We don't read it in healthy articles. We don't, see, it typically provokes in us a neediness, a, a, a suffocation, an issue. But when it brings it up here, the word is actually a different language that's used than anywhere else in the Old Testament. It's actually referring to a husband and, and wife type relationships, referring to a marriage word. And it's saying that it's not that jealousy isn't so much a deficiency of God and his neediness. It's actually driven more to our need. It's saying that he is committed to you. He loves you. And it's not really that he's desired that he feels insecure, this language doesn't drive, and that's typically what we think, that someone, when you feel jealousy, you feel insecure about you comparatively to someone else. God doesn't feel insecure comparatively. Actually, what he's doing is saying, please don't put me in the same category because I'm much greater and because my love for you is much more. What, what would it be like if one of the people you loved, your significant other, a spouse, Someone else, even a parent did this to you. And maybe this happened to you and you can experience how horrible it sounds. That, you know, we, we got those filters on Instagram, right? What if, let me show you a picture of my wonderful child, spouse, significant other. And instead though of showing it, you go through and you know how you can filter and put all sorts of things on there. You began to just kind of craft on your filter kind of how you want them to see. Uh, you, know, you look better in a, you know, what is it, in sepia tone, all the weird names they just keep making up. And you just kind of keep putting it and you can draw and you can add and you can change, you can enhance and say, this, uh, this is my love. Now, how would that feel to you? It'd feel horrible. It'd feel terrible. Would it be appropriate if the significant other or your spouse or whomever it was on this end said to you, I am jealous for you? Would that be entirely appropriate? Yes. Because that love is unfiltered. God doesn't want help. He doesn't want things 
that we take of his character added to, that's what this commandment is saying. It's getting up underneath the ways that we want to say, you know what, Lord, I really like your love. I don't really like your wrath. I really like it when you're like really amazing and powerful, but I don't really like it when you tell people that they have to do things. I really like the New Testament. I don't really like the Old Testament. Those kind of things that you kind of go to God with. He's saying, get up underneath. So let's answer the question. Is it okay? And many of you may be thinking this. Is it okay to have a cross, a picture of Jesus? Those kind of things that have come up from this second commandment. There are paintings all over the world, beautiful paintings, an incredible artistic design in specific museums all across the world of Jesus and these kind of things. Yes, is it okay to have those things? It's okay. You're not like a heretic. But what happens is with those, when they begin to grab our heart and attach them to reinterpret Jesus or the Lord himself in any way to help you worship then you're missing it. Then you begin to, like what screw tape letter said, you begin to look to the corner of the room, right? Notice that's not a, you know, that's anything, anybody. That's not just one type of religion. That's not just one type. Anytime we're looking to the corner of a room or looking to something or some memory that we have, just like we encounter a Keith Urban and we think he's this way. No, he's this way in real life. What are we doing? We're overlaying our image onto someone to make them what we want them to be. And the Lord is jealous for you. He doesn't want a filter. He doesn't need the filter. He wants you to sit with actually the tension of being in relationship with him. And the times when, just like any other relationship, honestly, but even to a perfect, perfect degree, the parts of him and the parts of the Bible, what you see and you go, that's hard. Even as it ends, it says this, right? It says that, that for I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the, fa- on, on, of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation to those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands <coughs> of those who love me and keep my commandments. One of my seminary professors, I'll never forget it, told me in church history of all things, He said, you know you're growing as a Christian and you know you're really growing in a relationship with the Lord when you're growing in tension and mystery. When you can sit with things that you are not able to get your arms around. And isn't that the hardest thing for us? When we cannot get our arms around something. We want God to give us an airtight argument. God, just tell us what to do. I taught a few weeks ago on a very difficult topic. If any of you heard this, uh, I was um, called to speak on gender fluidity. Love to talk about it at any point, not afraid of it. We have this Wednesday night Curious Christianity thing and they asked me to speak on that. One of the things I noticed the most about it is the Q&A portion at the end. People really wanted me to give them just the right answer. They wanted me, and hey, I want that too, to solve the tension of those kind of big questions in our culture now. 
What does God send? Does he send an airtight answer? No. But he sends an airtight person. If you noticed in Colossians 1, he said, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That is Jesus. See, notice what God does here. And, and even with this last portion, it's like visiting the iniquity. And what he's saying, he's not saying your sins, we're gonna, God's just gonna punish your grandchildren and their grandchildren. That's not what he's getting at here. What he's saying is the ripple effects of sin go out. Look, I'm a child of a divorced family. Um, I'm not divorced. Uh, but the, the, the effects of my parents' divorce, I, I feel them. They visited me. I see that ripple effect in my own sin, how I, I act. All of us have that. So God does have that. There is a reality. But what does he also say? He says, but showing steadfast love to thousands, your grace is enough. His grace overwhelms. It goes beyond. It goes further. It extends. So that shows us what, what, what is this relationship about? His relationship with us never stops. And how does he send it? He sends it in an airtight person of Jesus. Look, rules don't change us. A lot of us in here are really great at that. We really wish we could have a rule. God, I really wish you would just be this or this. He's like, I am God. We really wish that, right? We would love to have a rule to leave here and go, now I got it. I'm gonna get on the tread, treadmill of faith and I'm gonna be so much stronger. It's not how it works. It's by coming to the person of Jesus Christ, who is the image. What, what is the commandment never says that God will never have an image? It never says that. It actually says, don't make an image that's not like me. God sends his image in Jesus. And guess what we're being transformed into? His image. We're being transformed into his image. This is why it's so important for us to go back to who God really is and how he does that in his word, especially in Hebrews. He talks about that. How does he speak? He speaks through his son. So that when we come to a table like this, this table is a picture of God giving us tangible things, right? He gives us tangible things, tactile things. Jesus came and was tactile, right? He had a body. He was embodied. We get to taste that, but what, where does it drive us? This meal isn't an end in of itself. It's a taste to drive us to grow by faith. How you really strengthen is by faith. What helps you through all the tensions of the wilderness that we live in? isn't the fact that you just get all the right answers all the time. It's that by faith, you are in relationship with the exact image, imprint of God himself. This table shows his healthy, zealous love for you. I want to read this to encourage you as we come to the table. I have to read this just because it encouraged me. This is from the Jesus Storybook Bible. For all of us that need our faith to be as they are like little children. Listen to how this 
Sally Lloyd-Jones puts this in perspective. God gave them other rules like don't make for yourself pretend gods. Don't kill people or steal or lie. The rules showed God's people how to live and how to be close to him and how to be happy. They showed how life worked best. God, God promises to always look after you, Moses said. Will you love him and keep these rules? We can do it, yes. They pro- we promise, the people of God said. But they were wrong. They couldn't do it. No matter how hard they tried, they could never keep God's rules all the time. God knew they couldn't, and he wanted them to know it too. Only one person could keep all the rules. And many years later, God would send him to stand in their place and be perfect for them because the rules couldn't save them. Only God could save them. That's how we come to this table. We come to this table and taste how you are actually saved so that you can leave and continue to be transformed into that image that you're made to be. Let's stand together. Let's answer this question. What right do we have to dine at the table of Jesus? As children of God, through faith in Jesus, we have every right to dine at his table. What do we mean by this? We mean that Jesus came not for the strong, but for the weak, not for the righteous, but for sinners, not for the self-sufficient, but for those who know they need rescue. To all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God even cares, to all who are weak and frail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a savior, Jesus welcomes into his circle, adopts into his family, and reserves a place at his table. For he is the mighty friend of sinners, the ally of his enemies, the defender of the indefensible, and the justifier of those who have no excuses left. Amen. Please be seated.